Welcome to this episode of the Harley Access Network podcast. I'm Helen Leal Green. The Harley Access Network levels the playing field for high achieving, low income Africans to access international higher education opportunities. The series is about conversations between Harley Access Network members, students and friends. I'd like to introduce you to my co-presenters. Here they are. Hi, I'm Janet Bosa. Hello, I'm Quinson Amonje. Hello, my name is Habiba Malinga and I am from Uganda. So, Quincy, you've been working on a discourse series which I'm really interested about. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yes, absolutely. The discourse series is basically a conversation that... um, you know, a group of friends, or mostly Zambians, uh, that are studying abroad, um, decided to come up with, uh, in collaboration with other Zambians back home and uh, different uh, people studying abroad, to try and discuss about the different issues that um, affect Africa and our our you know um, national issues, like Zambia's problems and other countries. Um, yeah, so some of the topics we try to. Uh, you know, focus on uh, things like whether Africans were deliberately colonized mentally so as to make them reproduce coloniality as they try to make history. And we also try to understand whether Africans have been deliberately portrayed as bystanders, uh, you know, in the making of history. Uh, We thought this was important because all these have directly and indirectly, uh, you know, have had an impact on present day African struggles, uh, so we believe. Uh, So we try to um, look at ways in which Africans could probably create African futures within a modern day, um, you know, a modern world uh, system, which is mainly structured by global coloniality. Because, well, we think that today's, uh, you know, global coloniality may not necessarily be as physical as that, that, you know, in In the past. past. Mm. Yeah, but we still think that uh, today's coloniality operates as an invisible power matrix that, uh, you know, shapes and sustains asymmetrical power relations between the global north and south. And, you know, the rest of the world just follows under that. Uh, So we try to basically... um, you know, see what we can do, what we can possibly do as victims of a flawed narrative. And our sense is that conversations need to be had about both external and internal perception of Africans. Um, And we think Africans must reclaim their rightful position and be able to tell their own story so that they can debunk the many preconceptions that perpetuate discriminations and belittlement uh, of Africans. Yeah, so that's, I think... The whole round, wow. it's a whole rounded conversation. That's really interesting. It's, it's something yeah. in those I lines. really like the idea that you include people that are studying both within Zambia and outside Zambia. So how, how have you got to recruit those, those people? Uh, I guess they're friends and contacts you already mm-hmm. have. But how, roughly how many people are involved in this discourse? Well, I think there I might say over 20 mm. people, but then the thing is attendance differs depending on, you know, what's the other person, the other people's availability. But right now it has been kind of, um, you know, low because we've got students who are writing exams and like CBU and UNSA students have exams. Yeah. So they're not really attending these um, um, 
sessions now. Mm. Do you find they have different views because they haven't been exposed to different different situations abroad? I actually was very I expected it to be that way. Mm. I thought them I thought that they would not be as you know like um you know their opinions may not be as well rounded or nuanced but no it's actually very very different and i think most um you know students or african students back home do read about these things they know these things but they just don't have a platform to bring them out and i think that's one of the things that we've been able to you know to really appreciate it's like you learn one or two things uh each time you go and meet and yeah i think everyone really does well and the other thing that i think helps is that before we have these um you know conversations uh one of the members like the one of the people who started it sends out like um you know a brief of what we're going to talk about and so he like gives us time to kind of research on the topic and to just have a read before we can come and discuss so that it's a little bit um you know well thought of I think. Quincy, mm. I'm curious because I do have a different opinion about why Ugandans think about colonialism and all that. And it, I usually find it really interesting how much or how many things mm-hmm. are, you know, prevalent within yeah. Uganda. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like um, your education or career or curriculum within um, Zambia has shifted to be able to reflect that because I know for Uganda's case most of the ways we talk about colonialism it's as if we're bystanders as you mentioned right mm-hmm. in terms of colonialism there's actually a really crazy question paper that I, I, I stumbled upon that asked the question why were East Africans colonized by Europeans <laughs> making it sound like you know they they invited or they were bystanders within that so I was kind of curious how do you feel like either your, the education within Zambia has moved in order to allow such conversations or maybe there's still a way to go? Um, personally, I don't think our education system does, you know, does it justice. I think there is very, there are very little, there's very little history that is taught in schools about what really happened in the past, how our ancestors, you know, uh, really struggled to gain that independence that we have today. And I think, um, honestly, of the many things that we Africans uh, don't have access to right now, it's so sad that uh, our own history is a part of that. And I don't think our education system does that because if the the, the, the other, like, um, surprising thing is if you are you can only access no knowledge or information about these things if you're just you know if you're interested in it and you go and research elsewhere but it's not something that is presented like the way that they present mathematics or you know uh, I don't know other courses in schools so I thought the history courses that we have in schools are not really history courses because they never really teach us the fundamentals uh, you know, of our past and things that would at least give us a sense of pride to be African. Yeah, and like uh, yeah. being Zambian myself, um, I guess like everything that you said, I agree with in terms of like our education system and just how like that information is kind of withheld. Um, and you did say earlier that, you know, like hopefully like as Africans we can get to reclaim our own stories and be able to share them from our perspectives 
So going forward, how do you think this discourse series can help aid that? How do you think the discourse series can pave a way to that? Okay, so uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> uh, well, um, as at now, I don't think we have like, um, you know, a well formulated way of how we would like the discourse series to um, be able to spread that kind of information or um, yeah. I don't know. But then one thing that we know is, um, you know, like when you look at um, how we humans operate, there's always those people that, you know, talk and talk. And in as much as they talk and talk, they do help in, in a way because they help spread the information and people are, are becoming more aware. But we also have the action takers that feed off that information that is from those who talk and talk. So we think... Um, that for now, in as much as we may not have a proper way of, uh, you know, taking action or spreading the information, we just think as many students as as we can, you know, um, have on this platform, and, you know, um, continue having these conversations. We believe that one day, at least a lot of youths could, um, you know, at begin talking about these things that are very imperative but and we know them but we don't really talk about them yeah i think yeah so uh one other thing that i wanted to mention is uh one of the most important things that we try to um and we'll focus on even as we're having these conversations is we are not trying to blame uh you know the 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 colonialists or the outsiders for our problems or poverty or whatever. So we try to stand in a place where uh, we think, uh, you know, Africans must stop the blame game and should really, um, you know, try and face their problems and reclaim them in as much as, yes, history has a role to play and all that. But we also try to focus on those things. And we just think these conversations uh, should first be had internally before we can, you know, take them outside and begin pointing mm. fingers. So I think yeah. I think that's very good because I think that's very, very empowering then by not talking about blame. Um, it's important, like you say, to understand what's happened in the past and but um but it is in the past and so and it's very easy to get stuck in the past and i think the important thing is to be able to empower people and move on so yeah it's really really good that it's it, the conversations are starting um over to you janet now would you like to introduce yourself yeah sure so um my name is janet botha like Quincy as well, I'm studying at the University of Edinburgh and I'm in my third year now studying civil engineering and Zambian, from Zambia as well. Okay. I know when we've talked before, you've, you've often said how you're really interested in built structures and things like that. Um, but you mentioned to me that you recently started a project, I think it was for a competition, on water in the Sahara Desert. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this was a competition that I got into with one of my friends. I think that was like in June or July. And it was basically, uh, we were trying to address water scarcity in the Sahel. So that's like the region between the Sahara Desert and the savannah down at the north, um, at the south rather. 
Yeah, so that was a really interesting project because, first of all, that's a region that I personally do not know much about. So <laughs> it was kind of like starting from scratch in terms of like researching um, the countries that are there, um, their economic standing right now, and just really what's happening there. And it was, I was really shocked, to be honest, like trying to find out everything that's going on and really how bad the situation is. And with climate change right now, it's it's really, really terrible. And so that was really kind of like, I was really passionate about it mm-hmm. and really had a good time, I would say. So what, what sort of climate change um, issues are they seeing already? Um, so now um, I'm pretty sure, as everybody knows, global warming <laughs> is definitely the talk of the day. And yeah, the earth is getting hotter and hotter. And in that region specifically, already like resources are pretty scarce so to say so with the earth getting hotter and hotter water availability is just reducing and with that and the fact that population is growing you just have this imbalance where you have people increasing in number and the amount of resources are decreasing so there's that imbalance and it's not a question of is it is it like in terms of water management and how people are managing what they already have or is it like a case of having to bring in new resources and thinking of innovative ways of addressing that? Wow, that's really, really interesting. One of the things you mentioned to me before was that um, scarcity of data has been an issue. Yeah, <laughs> so because <laughs> uh, we were trying to like, um, like I mentioned earlier, it was kind of like a question of is it management like is it that the resources that are there even though they're scarce they're being mismanaged or is it like we need to bring in innovative ways of you know providing water to the population so we're trying to you know get a lot of information about like water usage and the amount of resources that they have right now but it was really a feat like (laughs) we had we had to go through a lot of things and really there wasn't a lot of information available so it was it was pretty difficult, so to say, to get the data necessary to be able to come up with a solution that would really reflect what's happening there right now, because most of the data actually that we got a hold of was data from like 2015 or 2014. Mm-hmm. And even then it was like 2014. And then the data that was available before that was like 2000. So you can't necessarily even like find a trend to be able to predict what might happen in the future. So, mm. yeah, that was, um, that was the case. Where, is, it, is it a problem of sharing data because governments are quite closed about the data that they allow to be shared? Or, or is it that nobody collects it at all? So I would actually think it's more of sharing it because... I don't know about other countries, but like, for instance, in Zambia, uh, we do have water meters. I don't know about Uganda, (laughs) Habiba. We do have those too, yeah. Yeah, so they use those mostly um, to, you know, like figure out how much water you're using and then to charge you for that. So I would actually say the data is there if it's the same situation. So the data would be there and they have that data. So it's a question of are they sharing it? Are they actually compiling it and using it? That, that would be the question. And maybe, I guess, making it open source because that would be the case because I'm not like, you know, <laughs> any government official to be able mm. to have access to it that quickly or through those means. Mm. So it would be, is it available for everyone to yeah. see? Yeah. 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 And I think 
I, I kind of I understand where you're coming from. And it's so sad to see that it's not only, you know, with like that kind of data that is being withheld, even just things about um, like even just simple data, graphs, GDP, all those things are still not available. And it's so sad. Uh, so my question for you, Janet, would be like, I know you've said, uh, you've hinted at what could be one of the reasons why the data, I don't know if you've said why, uh, you know, the data could not be available, but what kind of reasons do you think they would have for not publicizing that kind of data? Yeah, that's a very good question because that's something that uh, my partner and I actually had a discussion on um, during the project. So I think with the case of like Africa specifically and the way I would say most people capitalize on the fact that people don't know what's happening. So it would be the case of that data being withheld because um, I would say people in like, you know, powerful positions don't want people to know what's happening and so it's trying to really get into you know like that ignorance and capitalizing on it because if people are aware of what's happening and people you know are equipped and they are empowered they are able to you know take action and make decisions and things like that or even just push for change so I think it's really a case of just I guess people trying to capitalize on that okay yeah interesting yeah it, it um, is, it's really, really interesting. Habiba, yes. Yeah, I, I was going to say just on the data thing also, like uh, Uganda's government has just recently discovered that they've been uh, harming the country more by withholding data as simple as also like uh, COVID data. And it was kind of shocking watching that on the news. So I think there is that habit of withholding data maybe because they're trying to specifically give it to certain people. I don't know what the whole uh, rationale is, but I just, I'm, I'm curious about something else though, um, Janet. I was wondering how uh, your work or like before you, before you went to Edinburgh, how do you feel that kind of connected you to wanting to do such a project? Do you feel like there is something in Zambia that probably propelled you towards that direction? I'm just curious. Oh, that's, uh, I think actually the, I had a conversation with Helen about this. I think it was one of the topics that I did in like my essay, my college education was, essay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. So I think um, what are generally in Zambia, so to say, is I guess a big discussion. <laughs> People are quiet differently and there's, there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of things that are happening and water scarcity is also a problem in Zambia. And I remember talking to Helen about, you know, people like the different ways that people try and address that in terms of like making their own ways, like uh, using boreholes that are, you know, like residential boreholes mm -hmm. and not really relying on, you know, like council and the government to provide that for them. So I would say like coming to Edinburgh, my focus on water kind of like faded away a bit. <laughs> but um, after meeting my friend now and the person I was working with, it was, it was really just a case of brainstorming, really what topics we would go into. And at the end of the day, we were like, you know what, this, this is a project that had, you know, like a lot of people involved and this could be something that could have a huge impact. And this is something that is in Africa, you know, like that's, that's our home. So. I guess mm -hmm. that, you know, that previous experience or interest was kind of rekindled and yeah, probably why I ended up taking it up. <laughs> Such a Pan-Africanist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And um, and Janet, you're you're part of the Mastercard Scholarship um, or Mastercard Foundation Scholarship Program. Um, do you want to say a little bit about about what that entails and what sort of things you do with as part of that program? Well, um, I think the Mastercard Foundation Scholarship really, as they brand it to be more than a scholarship really is what you know like it stands out for what that brand is to be honest because the number of you know things that they get us to be involved in really are just um, outside the academic setting and outside the curriculum so uh, they have this theme of transformative uh, leadership that you know they expect every scholar to kind of like engage in and they sort of like implement this through like summer schools and um, like extracurricular activities that they expect you to you know like take part and I would say it's been a really interesting journey uh, for me specifically uh, for instance last year we had a summer school that I was part uh, of and we had students coming in from other universities in Africa like Ashesi and it was a really interesting experience getting to talk to those those guys as well and learning about their experience and what leadership means to them and what leadership means and how you know we can work together in terms of like helping Africa develop and helping Africa stand up so the massacre really program is is an interesting program and <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would that would be part of uh you know uh, part of the program and just how it's been executed here and how I've been enjoying that and what and what about um there's quite a zambian contingent in <laughs> edinburgh and um, so this yeah. is really for both quincy and janet how how do you celebrate your zambianness at edinburgh university <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go first quincy? <laughs> no you go first <laughs> okay. I, mean, I think I think it's pretty clear that Zambians love Shima. So. <laughs> Do you want to explain what it is for people who don't know? So Shima is, uh, I would say, for maybe like for someone to easily understand, just think of mashed potato, but makes of made of you know maize meal. So yeah, <laughs> that type of consistency. And, <laughs> but just maize. Yeah, meal. and just in case you're coming from West Africa, that's fufu. If it's East Africa, that's ugali. <laughs> then ugali, certain yeah. African countries, that's sadza. Southern African. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, South Africa. So, yes. in South Africa, they call it pap. Pa- oh, they do. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> Zimbabweans call it salsa. Yeah, yeah. But for everyone mm. outside that, yeah, mashed potato, but made of <laughs> consistency. Okay. So like okay. bread. So like bread, but in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> in a different way. Yeah. Exactly. So I would say that brings us together, really, yeah. and. It's been it's been so much fun just getting to know everybody and building that community and we've had a lot of interesting conversations mm-hmm. thinking about how you know coming from home and getting this opportunity to really like you know like build up and build up on our potential and just having access to all these resources that we have now yeah. and just really I think most importantly it's been building a community mm. of people who are pursuing the same thing yeah. and in the same place yeah. Yeah. Just to add on, I would say that our community here also really does help with mental issue 
mental issues uh because like there are sometimes when you know uni could get hard and uh you yeah. re- maybe don't know where like who to talk to or what to do but i think with the kind of community that we've been able to establish here amongst the zambians it's so easy to find someone to talk to and you can just literally call up someone and you know rant out all your issues and they'll just be there and listen and also the other thing i think is being able to speak in your you know local language it's it has a different Absolutely. joy it comes with something <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but it just like brings out the real you in you and it reminds you of the old days the old times so i think that's really something that i also appreciate about the zambian community and being there for each other on our birthdays because it's like home you know family and yeah Oh, that is really nice. But I mean, Zambia's got so many languages. Have you got a common language between all of you scholars? Yeah, we have yeah. Bemba, and Ing- uh, Bemba and Nyanja, because most of us are from Osaka okay. and Copper Belt. Yeah. Oh, that, that makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> then, it was, I had a friend in, uh, in Berkeley, but we couldn't really speak for Ghana. And I was like, oh my God. I, I, like, <laughs> so I totally feel the joy you're exuding by you know, expressing being able to do that. Yeah. And when I'll bump into a Ugandan anywhere in the US, I'll just be like, oh my, oh my God. God. <laughs> now speak right. <laughs> And those are very, very rare opportunities. It was yeah, something similar actually happened to me i used to when i just came i i used to work as a shop assistant uh in as an african hair shop and so i was there putting you know products on the shelf and then uh, i two women came in and they was they were like ah mommy and then i'm like excuse me are you zambians (laughs) (laughs) and then they're like like they greeted me in my language uh, which I was like, oh my God, those were the first Zambians I met who were not scholars. I was so happy. And I was just like, I know I don't know you, but let me hug you. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, no, I can imagine that must have been a really, was, really lovely so moment. Nice. And after then, it's just been like, they're my parents here, my Zambian parents. And I go there to eat food wow. when I want. <laughs> that's oh, amazing <laughs> okay well thank thanks janet for um for talking about all those things i hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast as much as i did and listening to the views of quincy and janet if you want to know more about harley access network then please follow us on social media linkedin facebook instagram and twitter or visit our website www harleyaccess.org. Thank you for listening and please tune in again for our fortnightly episodes. Bye-bye.